Welcome to Inspired Edinburgh, the home of powerful conversations. I'm Elliot Reeves and my guest today is Jason Ald. Jason is a two-time record-breaking extreme unicyclist and a founding member of Team Voodoo, one of the world's first extreme unicycling display teams. The team began in 2008 to promote the esoteric sport to the masses and to make a sustainable living out of a passion for street unicycling and self-expression through urban athleticism. You've performed internationally at high-profile events such as the Formula One Grand Prix in Abu Dhabi and the London 2012 Paralympic Games. You featured on the National Geographic Channel, Blue Peter, Britain's Got Talent, the hour and CBBC's officially amazing. You represented the sport in front of Prince Charles and Dame Kelly Holmes, and you've been part of marketing campaigns with global brands, including McDonald's, Pepsi, Samsung, Sky TV, and Converse. You've also appeared in the press and on Sky News and BBC as a spokesperson discussing your use of smart drug modafinil, and you work regularly with schools, youth clubs, and charities around the country to use the power of unicycling to promote and instill confidence, tenacity, concentration, self-belief, and self-mastery. Jason, it's phenomenal to have you here. Welcome to the show. What an intro, Elliot. Thank you for having me. I'm glad <laughs> it's you an did absolute your, pleasure. Glad you did your breathing exercises there. Yeah, I really I had to. Yeah. I had to for that one. Yeah, yeah. Not, How good not... is this? Good is this merch, by the way. <laughs> Do you like it? Yeah, I want to I want to buy one off the website. This is inspired Edinburgh. Look at this. Every morning, wake up to this. <laughs> I knew you were coming, so I had to up my game, you know. Not, not the first time that you've sat in that chair. No, I guess not. Uh... Was it two and a half years ago? Two and a half say? years ago. Yeah, different different brand at the time. Definitely, but, just uh, uh, just the beginnings. You've come so far. Just the merchandise <laughs> is just one of those things. But yeah, no, glad to be back. It's a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely, I I really do enjoy spending time with you, me chatting too. to you. I enjoy your perspectives. Thank you. And uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. Me too. Me too. So for people who aren't uh, familiar <laughs> with Jason Ald, I mean, if you can kind of give us a bit of a snapshot into your early life, your background and yeah, kind of what that was like. Yeah, sure. No problem. So uh, I was born and raised in Edinburgh uh, to parents who were born and raised in Edinburgh to grandparents who were born and raised in Edinburgh. So <laughs> very much of the local community. Um Went to school here, uh, started kind of, I think my first venture kind of outside of school was I was a gym instructor and I kind of fell into that because like a lot of young people and I think maybe more so now than ever before, the kind of ultimatum of do I go to university or do I do something else? It can weigh heavy on your shoulders, especially if you're from a family where it's expected of you. Now that can be because you're from a long line of people who have been to university or it can be like in my case where I was one of the first people in my family to go to university. Mm. But in all honesty, um, I think now, especially for people who don't live in Scotland who have to front the money um, and get in huge debt, you really have to ask yourself the question, what value will university bring? And so I started going to uni and I dropped out very quickly because I realized that it wasn't for me. And my mom always said to me, I don't care what you do as long as you're doing something. And so <laughs> I was, I quickly thought, what do yeah. I want to do? I was, I was very kind of involved athletically uh, across the board, obviously within unicycling, but other things too. And so I thought, why not teach people to do that? Uh, very, very quickly, I became disillusioned. Because working, I ended up working in the, the Hilton, I believe is now Waldorf Astoria. Yeah, uh, The yeah. Cali. And that was a very, it was a learning experience, but it was a 
majority negative experience okay. and it's something I've taken away from me where I, if I ever have children or if I ever meet young people I say don't work in a hotel because they treat you am I allowed to swear? absolutely they treat you like shit <laughs> uh, and they they milk you for all they can get and I think when you're a young person that can either be you can either take it on the chin and go you know this is me climbing the ladder or it can actually be quite detrimental to your development because you know in terms of your self-worth and what have you yeah so I became pretty <laughs> yeah. disillusioned with that and I was even at a point we're talking maybe 11 years ago now now, you know, everyone and their mum's got a sports science degree and is working in gyms. At the time, I had a very simple uh, qualification that I kind of turned over within six weeks. But at the time, it felt very kind of uh, empowering. It was a I dropped out of uni, felt a little bit depressed. And actually, I saw the film The Pursuit of Happiness. And that was what inspired me to kind of... Uh, be self-motivated because he ends up working. Is that uh, Will Smith? That's right. Yeah. yeah, he ends up working. He's got a kid, and he, he, you know, sleeps wherever he can with his kid. But he ended up working for free for six months um, in this, like, you know, a job that beyond my intelligence. I think it was a broker or something. <laughs> but the fact that he was training and working for nothing for six months and raising his kid, it taught me a valuable lesson of. Um, putting yourself out there yeah. and uh, I contacted the local gym and I said I'm willing to work for free if you give me an opportunity because you find with a lot of places um, they want experience mm -hmm. but how do you get experience yeah. if you've never had the job yeah. so it's a kind of catch-22 so totally. that was a, a major thing that I learned sometimes you kind of have to put yourself out there um, and yeah. kind of offer value before you get value back dropped out of that ended up working uh, for a group that were at the time called EHX their whole kind of uh, aim, the whole reason that they came to be was because they wanted to raise money for Edinburgh's first indoor skate park, which ended up being in Ocean Terminal, uh, which is now called Transgression Park. And it's moved around the city. Actually, it was out at uh, Peffer Mill. Okay. Uh, then it was out in Dalkeith and now it's back in Ocean Terminal. But um, we were like kind of an extreme sports display team. We performed at different events and we raised money mm -hmm. uh, for this park. And it was my first taste of understanding that I could make a living out of unicycling. So um, one of the illustrious names that were on that team was uh, Scotland's own Danny McCaskill, yeah. who at the time was kind of, this was before he was a big deal. Um, but he obviously went on to bigger and better things. We then did a show in the festival, 30 Days, uh, which was a really cool experience. I think being from Edinburgh, if being from Edinburgh and being part of the entertainment industry, to be part of the fringes is kind of a dream. Uh, yeah. It's a, a box to tick off. But it, that was the, the point at which I said to myself, I'm never going to do a normal job, whatever a normal job is, again. <laughs> and uh, that was the point at which I then jumped off to try and become a professional extreme unicyclist. Awesome. I'll, I'll pause you there. Yeah. Um, just going back a bit, I mean, I read in your uh, one of your bios, street unicycling for over 12 years, professional since the age of 19. What was your earliest memory of unicycling? So I started unicycling when I was 14. And it was, I got my first unicycle for my 14th birthday. And the kind of prevailing memory of that time was my grandfather helped me put it together. And he said... Uh, Years later, when I'd been on TV or I'd been, I'd come back from performing in the Middle East at the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix or, or in Bahrain or one of the, the many places, glamorous events I'd been to, he said, I honestly thought you'd play with that for a week and then throw away. 
And I was like, wow, you know, being, really? yeah, being the kind of like having the kind of obnoxious uh, personality that I have, and especially my relationship with my grandfather, I was, I was really, I was quite glad to stick it to him in that sense. But um, <laughs> yeah, so I mean, I started at 14. And for me, I always describe myself as part of the jackass generation. Mm-hmm. So it was a time where kind of X Games was at its height. Tony, Tony Hawk's Pro Skater was the biggest game on PlayStation. Um, it was really a kind of a boom period for extreme sports, for alternative sports. Um, and people were making money out of doing it. I remember looking at guys like Bam Margera and thinking, like, that guy isn't getting paid to compete. He's not getting paid to appear here, there, everywhere. He really forged a path for himself and he used his skateboarding almost as a kind of, excuse the pun, vehicle in which to kind of promote himself. So I was always like, how do you become a professional extreme unicyclist? Yeah. And I always, Great question. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so for me, I was always like, well, there's no competitions, there's no sponsorship. Yeah. How do you do it? And and those guys were really kind of pioneers and, and inspiring for me because they, they never saw a path ahead of them. They created the path. So, mm-hmm. um, so yeah, back to where it started, obviously, I thought of unicycling in exactly the same way as everybody thinks of unicycling as something that clowns do, something that street performers do. Um, and for me, it very much was just a party trick. I was, I was 14 years old. I was full of, you know, the vigor of, of, of being a teenager where I just wanted to stand out. I just wanted to be different. I wanted to be a guy who wasn't necessarily the best at football or the best at rugby, but I was the only guy doing these stupid, crazy things. And uh, unicycling, that's what led me to unicycling. And being part of this kind of um, boom period for extreme sports, I always looked at it as an opportunity to try and turn it into an urban sport or street sport. And I thought, well, let me look at the internet. And this was before YouTube and everything, but there was forums and there was online uh, platforms for which you could find these things. And they discovered a whole community of people who were not necessarily doing urban unicycling, but were doing things like mountain unicycling, were doing trials unicycling, freestyle unicycling, and basically using the unicycle in ways that you wouldn't necessarily think of immediately. Mm-hmm. And that's what led me into, uh, I guess, alternative styles of unicycling. Mm-hmm. So, so, I mean, reflecting back on it now, I mean, you use um, the word entrepreneurship in quite a lot of the things that I've read as well. So you must, to some extent, identify with being an entrepreneur. But I mean, how have you managed to make it an actual career? What were the steps? Yeah, I guess I do. I guess, I mean, it, it's it's a bit of a cliche and a bit of a buzzword these days, isn't it, to call yourself an entrepreneur? But I think in the truest sense of what it is to be entrepreneurial, yeah. I think to be self-motivated, to use your own abilities to kind of promote yourself and to build your business. Uh, I, I think I've done exactly that mm-hmm. to b- varying degrees of success over the years. But um, for me, it was always, I always viewed myself as an entertainer. Don't get me wrong. I've, I've, I've been quite obsessed with my athletic potential and pushing myself athletically across the board, not just within unicycling. You know, I do a lot of, of, of uh, gym-based work, a lot of lifting, a lot of um, explosive exercises. And, and I do pride myself on being athletically... Um, Competent? Yeah, that's a good word. Yeah, I, did, I was going to say superior. <laughs> but then Careful. I thought, I don't want to be an arsehole. Uh, no, I mean, I, I, for yeah, it's, it's something that I've always kind of pushed myself for. And um, and But first and foremost, I was always inspired by athletes or people who were doing physical things, but people who understood 
that they were forms of entertainment. And I guess it's particularly prevalent now with someone like Conor McGregor, <laughs> who understands that, yes, he's an athlete, he's a martial artist, but he understands that he's an entertainer first and foremost, because at the end of the day, you can be the best athlete in the world, but if no one wants to watch you, if no one wants you to wear their suits, no one wants you to drink their drink, no one wants you on the, fa- the cover of the magazine, yeah. you're not going to make that money. So, mm-hmm. um, and, and don't get me wrong, my, my, me being an entertainer was never about me making money. Mm-hmm. It was always driven by, if I'm going to be uh, self-analytical, Probably always driven by a desire to want to be center stage, want to have the attention of people. It was never driven by money. I've never really been motivated by money, to be honest with you, but I have been motivated by attention. So, uh, probably being an only <laughs> child. So, um, yeah, yeah so I, I was always a showman, always an entertainer, but also had one foot in the kind of athlete camp as well. So for me, I always thought that making money was going to be around entertainment and the team that I started Voodoo Unicycles with a couple other guys we quickly identified that the way that we were going to make money was to provide entertainment whether it be at live events whether it be for tv shows whether it be viral marketing which certainly was not a thing when we started but it became a thing um it was going to be entertainment based it wasn't going to be competing at competitions it wasn't getting sponsorship you know Mm -hmm. and I also learned very quickly that actually you know Back in the day, everyone talks about sponsorship, whether you're a skateboarder or BMX or whatever. We want to get sponsors. We want this guy to pay us just to exist. We want to wear this guy's logo and we'll get paid to do it. Mm-hmm. And I learned really quickly that that's not how you make money. That's definitely not how you make money. You don't pin yourself down with a relationship with one company. Mm-hmm. And companies don't want to pay you to put their name on. I mean, that's 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 barring for attention. And unless now more than ever, unless you've got a huge audience, yeah. they're not going to pay you a huge amount of money. So the way forward was to uh, to provide entertainment, specifically at live events, but then we branched out to other things as well. So um, yeah, that's how that, that's how I made my living really over the years. Yeah, it's very cool. So how did you manage to get? I mean, I don't know if you call them partnerships, but like working with some of these big brands. How did yeah. you go about doing that? Yeah, so this is a, another really interesting thing. It's, I guess it's something I've never spoken about and it's something that I would like to talk about purely from an educational standpoint. Yeah. If there are people around now, and don't get me wrong, the business has changed massively even over the last 10, 12 years that I've been a part of it. Mm-hmm. But again, like, you know, I, I set off and I've had friends who have said to me, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I'm, I'm comfortable in my job, but it just doesn't speak to me. W- what should I be looking for? And I said, don't look for a job that, that, you know, that, that pays you for doing what you want. It's do what you want and then find a way to monetize that. And that's the order that it should come in. And that's always the way I've thought about it. So I've always gone, this is what I want to do. How can we get paid to do it? Mm-hmm. So, uh, Starting off, it was just as straightforward as contacting events. And, you know, when you first start out, you're like, who runs an event? You know, like, mm-hmm. who runs Tea in the Park, right? If, if I'm contacting Tea in the Park, oh, God, that's dated me, isn't it? Because Tea in the Park doesn't <laughs> exist anymore. <laughs> Glastonbury, right? Who runs Glastonbury? Do they, do they provide entertainment? Do they get their entertainment from one source? Do they work with one agency exclusively or, you know, something like that? Yeah. Do they have someone who is an entertainment manager uh, or an events manager? How do I get in contact with them? Where do I find their email address? You know, if I get their email address, will it just go straight into spam? You know, there's all these questions that there's no handbook for and it's something that you learn trial and error. So a lot, I started off just contacting events and you end up doing some 
honestly soul destroying events you know like local village <laughs> fairs and places that you've never heard of like i've been to these little places i, I went to a place called gerlock up north and i and i drove up there performed and then drove back we're talking like maybe 10 hour return journey performing for like three hours and i've performed in these crazy little places i mean there's where because it was like the start of vlogging and things like that like yeah. we caught caught on very quickly i mean people are actually interested in finding out what people do with their lives at the time we were filming it because we wanted to document the stupid shit we were doing <laughs> you know so it was like yeah because some of your videos go back like eight years and i'm yeah, like yeah. that was really forward thinking yeah and like so like what the, one of my favorite ones is we were on a tv show called the slammer i don't know if you mentioned it i don't even know if it exists anymore <laughs> Never heard the whole premise was actually quite uh sinister when you think about it because it was it was entertainment prison and you're locked up in prison and they give five acts the opportunity to leave prison by being voted out by the child's audience now, i always thought at the time it was a bit of a social commentary on the prisons being packed and letting people out early from their jail terms yeah. but anyway so we were on that and we filmed it and there's like i mean there's some funny stuff in there like we we um we got checked into the hotel like you know if you're ever on tv a lot of the time especially with the bbc they'll book your hotel for you they'll sort everything out we turn up to this hotel in um borum wood which is there's a quite a famous film set there a lot of star wars was filmed there indiana jones and it was the home of the previous the, i think the very first big brother house which we saw really yeah so this is the kind of showbiz lifestyle that i lead but anyway so we checked in me and my mate checked in and this is on the vlog you can check it out if you're really interested on youtube um and we checked in and they'd put our names as Extreme Jason and Extreme Joe. So my first name was Extreme and my surname was Jason. And they legitimately checked into this hotel. He's like, which one of you is Extreme Jason? And I was just like, this this is the, this is the life, <laughs> you know. So uh, Extreme Unicycle Superstar. But um, yeah, so and things like television opportunities very rarely are things that you can seek out more often than not if you people will specifically look for yes. these stupid things a, a tv yeah. show like the slammer they're looking for unique unusual mm-hmm. um entertainment and because we were <laughs> uh we were really at, at the height of our career we were the only real professional extreme unicyclists in the country uh and for a long time, I promoted our, our group as the only extreme unicycling display team. But I realized very quickly that that just meant, you know, it's very easy to be number one when no one else is yeah. doing it. So like the only one, the, the, that kind of sends a message of, oh, well, these are the only guys that could do this. Quickly change it to the number one extreme unicycling yeah. team. So, um, but yeah, so there, there was, there's that, um, I've totally forgotten the question originally. Yeah, I'm not really even sure where we started with that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, I guess like... But, uh, uh, in, in terms <laughs> it, was, it was it was really like how you managed to get the work with the brands. Oh, um, And, and yeah, going into like yeah, television. Which... I mean, I'll give, I'll give you an example in terms of the, the brands. And actually, it's funny because you have like... I mean, there's there's deeper things here that people need to think about with their with their careers. A great example is I got offered a job in Saudi Arabia. And I really wrestled over whether I wanted to do it or not. Because, like, look, I'm Jason Ald, professional extreme unicyclist. I'm not going to 
you know, solve the Middle East, you know, peace, yeah. con- you know, all these, <laughs> these conflicts in the Middle East. But at the same time, did I really want to profit from a place that, you know, had questionably, uh, questionable morals in terms of how they governed the country? Mm. Now, you know, you could say that about this country, you could say that about America or what have you. But when it's as blatant as at the time, we can't let women drive cars, you know, we can't do this, we can't do that. Do you want to profit from that? And these are things that you have to think about. And it was a thing I thought mm. about when I got asked to do a McDonald's campaign because, you know, and, and I, we were, we did it. So we did a tour. They were promoting a new product and uh, they wanted us to do uh, myself, uh, a break dancer and a number of other kind of urban sports guys. We were doing kind of, I guess, what you would describe as um, flash mob type things. Mm-hmm. You just spontaneously um, perform in the streets to promote this new product. And a guy in Glasgow, I kid you not, I mean, I won't use the word because it's the worst word we can all think of, but you McDonald's C word. So, and that really gets you thinking, is this dirty money that I'm taking? You know, like maybe I should have just sold drugs, you know, but so, I mean, these are moral quandaries that you think of, but that partnership that came, I was part of, and I'm quite happy to big them up. I was part of a, a, I wouldn't even, they didn't even call themselves an agency because they were a nonprofit. They were called Streets United um, and they represented a lot of urban sports athletes and performers and they had the opportunity uh, they were approached by McDonald's to provide these athletes. And so a lot of opportunities came through working with with groups like that. A lot of them came through um, working with agencies. So as you would imagine, conventional agencies in terms of people who provide entertainment. Um, all the foreign work came from agencies like that. So mm-hmm. working in the Middle East um, has either come from agencies based in the Middle East or agencies based here. You learn very quickly the entertainment industry is a little bit cliquey and mm. you really do have to try and uh, make inroads with people who already work within it. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah, it's, it is, it's very difficult when you start out and I would say to anyone who is trying to make a career in not even necessarily the entertainment industry but doing something where maybe there isn't a kind of set, structured framework. There's not people who have done it before you and you mm-hmm. can just slot in there. Mm-hmm. Um you kind of just have to use your initiative and you have to kind of try and make connections. You have to put yourself out there and maybe you do start off with um, doing things where you maybe, I don't want to say for cheap, but maybe you have to kind of, you know, lower your expectations at first. But a big tip I would say is don't do that forever. And you have to give yourself (laughs) a cutoff point because as soon as you offer someone something for free, They'll want it for free next time. Yeah. So either give them a reduced rate or make it entirely clear that you're doing it based on the understanding that this is a relationship that you're building and that next time this won't be the case. It's totally. this kind of reciprocity rule where yeah. I give you something and I want something back. Yeah. You have to learn that if you value yourself at nothing, then nine times out of ten, your clients, your customers will also value that. So uh, yeah, that's that's the roundabout way I would say it's difficult and it's always changing and social media has changed that massively as well yeah. it's put a lot of power in in the talent's hands but it's also meant that the people that you contact now sometimes you can get people who are at companies who are specifically managing social media accounts and so it's a lot easier to kind of contact those people yeah um i'm, I'm actually a, that's that's a nice place to just um pick up on on social media specifically as a topic because i've got it down here i mean you still 
produce a lot of content yourself. Yeah. You did obviously your 30 Days of Fury That's right. uh, vlogging. Uh, you still produce a lot of stuff on your Instagram account and whatnot. I mean, do you produce content because you feel that you have to or because you want to? That's a good question. Um, it's probably a bit of both. I think, I mean, we've had this conversation before about audience and and the content that you make. Um, I've always felt like when you're creating, I hate using the word art because it sounds obnoxious, but whenever you're creating whatever you're creating, it has to be first and foremost led by what it is that you want to do. So where in business, people always tell you, look for a gap in the market, provide something that people need Mm -hmm. because there's no point in making a product that no one wants, no point in providing a service that no one needs. With, With doing something creative, it has to first and foremost be your true and genuine expression of what it is you're doing. Mm-hmm. At the same time, you, if you are trying to make money out of your art, you have to also understand that you'll have an audience and you have to speak to that audience. So uh, I think I probably do a mixture of the two. I think if I do enjoy making things, and the thing that you cited there, 30 Days of Fury, that was uh, motivated by nothing more than my own passion for doing something. It was a it was a challenge I'd set myself. For anyone who doesn't know, I basically challenged myself to vlog for thirty days, and that was inspired by a previous inspired Edinburgh guest, Gavin Bell, yeah. who I believe did a hundred days uh, of vlogging. Mm-hmm. And um, I thought I'm going to do thirty days, but it was also inspired by something that I heard somewhere else, where someone said I gave myself thirty days where I was going to give up a negative habit in my life, and then I was also going to include a positive one. And so I thought, well, rather than just vlogging for 30 days, because to be quite honest with you, I hate that stuff. I hate people on Snapchat, Instagram, who literally just video themselves. <laughs> Doesn't matter how famous you are, like your life has to be pretty bloody exciting to just video your day. So I was like, I'm not just going to video my day. My life's not that important. I'm going to actually have you know some rhyme or reason behind why I'm documenting 30 days. Mm-hmm. And it was a real challenge and some of it is nonsense and some of it is better. Um, How did you find it? So I found it, it, I find it really interesting because it made me think of this idea of writer's block. And I've heard a lot of people talk about writer's block. I heard, and I, I hate quoting things without remembering who was the person that said them, but I heard someone mention, and I think it was specifically in terms of writing. It was talking about inspiration as like a, a force that that you know flies through the country it moves through the country and if you don't grasp it when it hits you it will move on and it'll hit someone else this idea of it being very like elusive and fleeting mm-hmm. uh, and it almost as an explanation of why sometimes you're not inspired and why sometimes you are mm-hmm. but then i've heard other people talk about um and it might be the the war on art uh i can't remember the art the the author's name you might remember is it Stephen? Uh, the war of art Stephen Pressfield yes he talks about resistance mm-hmm. he talks about all the things that stop you from doing the things that you want to do whether that be kind of you know laziness or procrastination or um you know motivation of all kinds mm-hmm. that resistance there that stops you from from achieving um it, it taught me that actually a lot of the time inspiration is something that you have to work for you know and it, I found that at the start of 30 days, you might be like, what am I going to fill 30 days with? But when you say to yourself, I'm going to make something no matter what, all of a sudden you put yourself in a mindset where you're saying, well, I have to find something to film rather than sitting there waiting for like the inspiration. 
waiting for the thing you want to document to hit you. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it was really good because it showed to me that if I really needed to produce something, I could. It was mm-hmm. in me and it was, it was a motivation thing as opposed to an inspiration thing. Um, but yeah, the, the, the whole reason for the 30 days was I wanted to try and increase my vertical jump. But rather than just doing a box jump in the gym, I decided to make it a little bit more theatrical. As I say, I'm an entertainer at heart and I wanted to jump on a car. Yeah. And that was purely inspired by it because people were sending me videos of these dudes jumping on cars from Instagram. And, you know, it was all these jacked up black dudes who were probably NBA players, you know, yeah. and they're like, hey, Jason, can you jump on a car? And I was like, a lot of my motivation has been people kind of taking the piss out of me, like saying like, oh, can you do this? Can you do this? And because you'll, I, you'll bite yeah and I'm like we'll see yeah. yeah and at the end of the 30 days I did jump on a car you know yeah. so uh, you can check that out online if you want to um, but yeah again it was it was one of those things where it was even little things that taught me like uh, like where was I going to get a car from I set myself this challenge mm. I don't own a car uh, none of my friends wanted me to jump on their cars so again it was that kind of it was a problem solving um exercise it was an artistic exercise and finding inspiration when when you don't have it but it was also it was an athletic pursuit too it was how do i increase my vertical in 30 days or how do i find a jumping technique that's going to help me jump higher in 30 days so for me it was a really rewarding experience and it was done for no other reason than i wanted to do it i wasn't getting paid for it didn't get sponsored for it didn't appear (laughs) on television yeah it was a really good opportunity to connect with some really interesting people in edinburgh Uh, but beyond that it was self-motivated um but in terms of the rest of the content that i create a lot of it is motivated by it's it's me wanting to push myself artistically and athletically, but it's also um, wanting to produce things that I feel like people might be entertained with. And it's difficult in this day and age. It's really hard, and you'll know yourself, Elliot. It's hard to gauge in terms of analytics what people like and what people don't. <laughs> Why are people watching the content that you watch? You know. Is it one person that sat there and watched it 2,000 times? You know, like you don't know no, these things, it's, it's, you know. Well, but now, because of algorithms and whatnot, exactly. you know, it's not even necessarily a true reflection of the work itself. Exactly. And, and I've never been one of those guys that's like, hey, I want 5,000 followers or like tomorrow and I want, yeah. give me a million likes here or there. I've always wanted to create quality content. Mm-hmm. And it's very frustrating when people don't see your content mm-hmm. purely because of an algorithm yeah. or purely because you're not a top influencer mm-hmm. not because the quality of your content is poor mm-hmm. and i don't want to produce content that no one wants to see like i'm not going to be that guy i am i do want to float between this idea of making what i want to make but i also want people to be entertained by it <laughs> and if they're not entertained by it then i'll change it up you know yeah. because i think you have to be fluid and i think you have to move between those two areas of being true and being genuine to your own artistic drive but you know, at the end of the day, I'm not obnoxious enough to think that every single thing I do is worth watching. So, yeah. <laughs> what, what's, what's your favorite, just a quick question, what's your favorite social media platform? It's probably, in terms of producing content, it's probably Instagram at the moment. Yeah. And I don't know why that is, but I do enjoy it. I think a lot of, uh, it got a lot of criticism for like originally it was like 30 second videos so it was like trying to condense all these things down mm-hmm. and obviously with vine it was this five second thing yeah. but that died super quick and i think because it was a novelty and now obviously you have one minute um and you can you can tell a decent enough story in one minute and but i won't lie i generally use 
that opportunity to create a clip and try and channel people to watch a longer form video. Yeah. In terms of, of what I consume as, as a consumer, uh-huh. I love YouTube yeah. and I am starting to, I treat all my YouTube like a TV channel really. And actually I will end up watching YouTube more than I watch television. So hmm. uh, I watch a lot it's a of- millennial thing that. I think probably <laughs> it is, yeah. But I think it's also a sign of, uh, there's a lack of kind of restraint in, in what can be produced on YouTube. You yeah. know, you know, the perfect example is Inspired Edinburgh. Like we can do two hours if we want to. We can make it 45 minutes. But yeah. if you've got a slot on TV, it has to be 22 minutes long every single week, you know, yeah. and, and it's, and it's driven and, and, and motivated by who's going to sponsor the show, who's going to be in the adverts and all these things. Yes. So, um, I, I like, I, don't get me wrong. I speak to a lot of people who don't like long form content, who can't, watch a three-hour podcast and i understand that there's a time and a place i'm lucky enough to be self-employed and so i can stick something on the background and, and consume it yeah. or i can consume it in chunks mm-hmm. um yeah but yeah I, I love watching stuff on youtube and don't worry there's a lot of shit on it but uh <laughs> yeah. I, I will not uh not you, this Elliot. I'm, I'm not, not well, inspired you know, I'm, not, I'm not gonna use this opportunity as a soapbox for no. me to voice my I'll channel, uh, channel you know frustrations me. with youtube that's yeah. we'll, we'll do that another time yeah. um right loving this conversation by the way me too really good i hope everyone else is <laughs> this well. is a dilemma isn't it we're loving <laughs> it but yeah. are, the, are the viewers loving it let's hope so we'll find out let's hope so um modafinil oh. modafinil uh we we did actually a short video on this but i really like to kind of go quite quite deep on this topic when did you first hear or come across modafinil oh that's a good question um so i think it was probably my friend and yours he's not really our friend (laughs) tim ferris uh (laughs) spiritually but not actually um so tim ferris mentioned it and he mentioned it with a huge caveat of i wouldn't recommend it but i've taken it and it's a nootropic, which is a buzzword, a smart drug, what have you. So I think I heard it. And I was always somebody, and I think I mentioned this in my previous um, interview, was always someone who, uh, I don't want to use the term biohacker because it sounds very mm-hmm. obnoxious but, uh, and pretentious, but I, I was always someone who saw myself as like a, an experiment. Uh, I always kind of treated myself as an experiment. And a lot of people see that as kind of, reckless and maybe kind of having a devil may care attitude but personally i think you know if you don't explore options then you can never know how far you can go in life you know Mm -hmm. so i was always looking for something that was going to be uh an aid it was always going to be something that helped me push my limits and 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 reach kind of total human optimization Mm -hmm. which i think is a that's on it another common phrase yeah (laughs) to plagiarize on it we'll get to that if you're watching um but anyway so that's where i heard it and then um this is the thing i think like so a lot of people will hear these things and go oh i'm a daphno i wonder what that's like maybe that would be cool to try i'm the kind of person who will look it up on the internet and i'll buy it so I bought some, and uh, I can't actually remember, believe it or not, I can remember the first time I took it. When was that? So I think it was 2014. Okay. It might have been 2015. But I remember, <laughs> I probably I probably shouldn't tell this story, but I will. Uh, I always like to be candid. Um, so I was living with my girlfriend's sister at the time and her daughter, so my, my girlfriend's niece. I should say my fiancé. Mm-hmm. I hate saying fiancé, it sounds so silly, but my girlfriend at the time, so, yeah. uh, and her sister, and she was like, can you give us a lift here? 
And I had just taken some modafinil for the first time, thinking I was going to get some work done. And I was like, yeah, sure, I'll give you a lift. And I remember driving on modafinil, and it was just like, the the way I could describe it was like, <laughs> I was just nailing it on every conversation we were having in the car. Just had every single answer that, that was could ever be conceived. Nailing the driving, one-handed, you know. I had a I had a people carrier at the time. Yeah, uh, yeah. It was it was so it was like it was originally we originally bought it so that we could put our our display rig in it because it was cheaper oh, than hiring okay. a van. And I originally thought, I mean, at the time I think it was maybe twenty five, twenty six. I was like, oh no, I'm driving a dad car. <laughs> I ended up absolutely loving it. It was the best car I've ever had. Anyway, so it was, but there was a there was a feeling of dread that I was like, oh my god, am I wasting this energy and enthusiasm and this kind of magic pill? on driving my future sister-in-law across London and not like yeah. getting work done. Yeah. Um, and it does give you that kind of jittery feeling and it does give you that kind of like, you know, up. But, you know, the more I used it, the more I started to realize, and we, we spoke about this briefly, like kind of as the, as the effects wear off because over time, you actually manage to harness it more. It's not as kind of overwhelming and it doesn't, you're in the, the driver's seat, so to speak, as opposed to it driving you. So, yeah. um, just so for anyone watching or listening for the avoidance of doubt, modafinil is an anti-narcolepsy pres- prescription drug, um, which is intended for people that suffer from a condition that they can't avoid falling asleep. Yeah, that's its sort of its purpose. I, I know that they gave it to like fighter pilots and whatnot to give them focus. Um, the long-term effects aren't really fully known scientifically. Um, I feel fine. <laughs> Sorry, if you were fine. And they used to actually, there was a lot of, uh, allegedly, a lot of sprinters used to almost pretend that they had narcolepsy in order to get prescriptions for it because it wasn't on the banned substance list. I quite believe it. And this is like, I mean, as someone who loves sport in general and is also kind of obsessed with uh, biohacking, yeah, yeah. Uh, you learn very quickly. I mean, you're very naive if you don't think that every single athlete in the world is chemically enhancing themselves in some way. Hmm. Now, whether that be with things that are borderline banned, mm-hmm. i.e. things that are... Because this is the thing. They only get banned if they worked, you know? Like, they don't ban things that don't work. Yeah. So if it is giving you an edge, if it is improving you, whether that be psychologically or physically, they'll ban it because they see it as an advantage. And a lot of these things, uh, don't get me wrong, when it's designed for something... And you're using it for something else, of course, there's always a little bit of a worry that it might be doing something to you that you don't intend it to. Mm-hmm. And I guess because there's not been extensive medical trials that this is a problem. And actually, I've been lucky enough that like you mentioned in my intro that I've become a kind of spokesperson for you it. Have, I've, been, yeah. I've been lucky enough to meet people who actually know what they're talking about. Because don't get me wrong, I'm not sitting here like I never call myself an expert beyond the kind of anecdotal evidence mm-hmm. that I have. And I'm also willing to accept that I'm an, I could be an outlier or, you know, my biochemistry means that it affects me in ways that it doesn't affect the rest of the population. Mm-hmm. So if people say to me, would you recommend it? Does it do this? Does it do that? All I can say is, hey, it does this for me, but it doesn't mean it's going to do this for you. Yeah. But I have been lucky to speak to people. I was on uh, the Victoria Derbyshire show, which is a BBC show, um, and I met a, a doctor who was doing trials with it. And uh, I can't remember her name, I apologise, but I think she worked at Cambridge University. She was doing studies. And she said to me, and this was not on the record, but I think she would be happy to say it on the record. She said to me that it was 
currently much safer than all the alternatives that people were currently using. So she was saying people like surgeons or people in the military, they're using things now, whether that be illegal substances or whether it be legal substances. Mm -hmm. They're using things that are currently either less effective or more dangerous than modafinil. She said to me that she'd rather someone operated on her under the influence of modafinil than someone that was pumping themselves full of coffee. Really? So there's a lot of questions to be asked there. You know, I think the kind of clandestine community of biohackers who are <laughs> buying prescription drugs off the internet because they want to write a few extra emails. Okay, maybe this is not the best way to do it. But at the end of the day, if the government is going to create legislation that means that we can't test these things, we can't put them through trials when they could have seriously positive effects. Mm -hmm. I think even just restricting the culture of experimentation across the board, yeah. and we won't get into, unless you want to, illegal drugs uh, in terms of recreational drugs or psychedelics or whatever, but it's mm -hmm. the same culture, the same idea that, look, there's no such thing as a biological free lunch. Mm -hmm. You're always, it's always, I, I love the term opportunity cost, which is the term they use in economics, which is if you invest money in something or in a process or your, your business decides to focus on one thing, that means that there's going to be an opportunity for you to build or provide something else that you're not taking advantage of. And I always think that that's what life is. Mm -hmm. Life is decisions are opportunity cost. If you decide to go one way, it means you're missing out here. If you decide to do something, it may be that you're taking consequences of that action. Yeah. But at the end of the day, I think if you are a well-thought-out person, you're a sensible person, mm -hmm. and you make a decision knowing yes. that there will be repercussions, I think a lot of the time that's fine, and that's good, and it's positive. Because I always say life is a full-contact sport. You know, you're not going to get, you know, if you're not getting hurt, then you're probably not doing it right. So Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Why do you think that smart drugs as a whole have become an issue of, I suppose, controversy? I think, I think first and foremost, it's because you're buying them off the internet. You're getting them from places that might not be um, entirely reputable. Okay. I mean, uh, the the biggest question I always get, and by the way, I get messages on social media every day about Seriously? medafinal. Yeah, really? yeah. I'll go. I mean, just actually, I, I, I'm assuming that you'll know this, but the BBC. Um, feature that you mentioned on YouTube has now had in excess of 1.6 million views. Yeah, it's crazy. Which is staggering. It's insane. And uh, what's even more insane is the guy that did that, a guy called Ben Zan, mm -hmm. who's now a super trendy millennial journalist. He's my mate. He asked me to do it as a favour. I was someone who had, one of the few people at the time, and I think that's changed, who had cited using medafinal for athletic purposes as opposed to you know uh Exams. for academic things <laughs> yeah. yeah so he wanted me to talk about it um in that sense but um yeah it's funny man he was a total waster when he was at uni and now he's this like kind of reputable vice-esque roving yeah. reporter uh, so i always take the piss out of him but um yeah, and whenever people contact me, they always cite, hey, I read this article, or hey, I watched this interview, and it's always that one. Um, and I guess it's the, that's the power of the BBC. But um, quite personally, that was not a great piece. It was, he ended up taking Modafinil for a week. And now, anyone who's worth their weight in, in, in 
<laughs> worth their weight in science <laughs> or anything else that weighs a lot. Yeah. Anyone else who is involved in seriously involved in the scientific community will know that that does not stand up as a you know as yeah. a scientific of course. examination yeah. of uh, of a of anything of a substance of a smart drug or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah. And he was citing all these things like headaches and and sleeplessness that he was exhibiting before he took that. You know, he told me that he'd had a really hard week. I right. don't want this to be a character assassination of my journalist Not friend. All, yeah, yeah. But, the, but the point was, he was in a situation where he was asked to take it for a week to do a bit. And and that's not a scientific examination. Neither no. is my experience of it either. You know, I'm not sitting here telling you that everything I've experienced with modafinil is what everyone will experience. Um, what have been your experiences with it? So I would say now I'm at the point where it does very little for me. Uh like a lot of things, it's not one of these things. It has a it has a ceiling in that you can't take like five tabs of modafinil and it's gonna give you the same effect as it did at the start. Mm-hmm. It, it it has a it has a shelf life, so to speak, and after a certain point it just doesn't work anymore for me. So I I would say my understanding of of smart drugs or nootropics, or uh, cognitive enhancers, whatever you want to call them. Mm-hmm. It, it's my understanding of them has evolved massively since I, I first started taking them. And the big question is, is this thing making you smarter or is it making you more alert? Is it making you, <laughs> is it giving you more energy? Is it uh, helping you focus more? Mm-hmm. And in all honesty, I am someone who, and I think I probably said in the previous interview, like my head is very much, there's a lot going on in there. And it's, it's like being in a crowded room where you're hearing everybody's conversation, you're hearing the clattering of, of glasses, or you're hearing the background music. And taking Modafinil for me was removing all those people from the room, removing all that noise, and allowing me to have a conversation with you. It was that. It was, mm. what do I need to do? I need to do this, right? I'm going to go and do it. And I can think about it, but it's over a, it's time, it's a cool description. Yeah, I mean, it was, like and it was the best. When people, when you start making analogies about voices in your head, people start to get worried. But <laughs> it was the best example, and so, yeah, and I think a lot of people can sympathise with that in terms of concentration. I think the way that the world is set up today, concentration is, you know, is that a minimum? Yeah. You know, we were talking about vines, we we're talking about thirty-second videos. The reason they exist is because people can't concentrate for longer than that. You know, I, I read a thing about make sure when you're making videos, make sure you cut every five seconds because people get bored. Yeah, five seconds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeez, come that's on, what man. keeping up with the Kardashians. I've I've heard Joe Rogan talk about that. Yeah, the reason that they have to cut so much is because people get they either can't focus for yeah. that amount of time. Exactly. So how are you going to read a book or how yeah. are you going to like listen to one thing for three hours when your attention span is five seconds? So I think that's why it's more prevalent than it's ever been. I will say, uh, like going back to your original question about uh, why is it perceived as dangerous, mm. I think it's probably perceived as dangerous just because there's not a lot of information on it. Yeah. And it's probably because you are now doing what would be lab experiments you're doing them in your front room or you're doing them in your office. Yeah. And that's always going to be a little bit dangerous. Now, I've probably got a certain amount of arrogance where I, I mean, I think I've got a pretty strong constitution that it will take a lot to knock me over. Uh, and I've probably got equal parts ignorance <laughs> that says, you know, if I exhibit negative side effects, I'll just ignore them. But, I would also say, I think we need to have situations where people try things out because, mm-hmm. 
I mean, you hear you hear about you hear about people who have dis- had major medical breakthroughs mm-hmm. in the past, and they've done it because they did the experiments on themselves. Because, you know, in terms of human trials, it's a very kind of controversial subject. And even animal testing is a controversial subject. Mm-hmm. So a lot of people, and it doesn't even have to be substance things, a lot of people who are looking uh, for experimentation, they do the experiments on themselves. And um, I don't think there's a huge amount wrong with that. I think there's varying degrees of uh, danger that you can put yourself in. Mm-hmm. And... As far as I know, you can't kill yourself by taking modafinil once. That's not me telling people to take it, but it, you weigh it up. And and this is like this is the the industry I've been in my whole life. Extreme sports. Yeah. People think that extreme sports is based on adrenaline junkies. Is this? Is that the connotations of that are people who are reckless and out of control? <laughs> people who don't gauge the risks. People who are fearless. I'll be the first to tell you, I'm one of the most scared people ever. But the quote that always comes to my mind is that bravery isn't the absence of fear. It's understanding that something is more important than the thing you're scared of. Hmm. And that's what extreme sports is. It's weighing up based on the training Mm -hmm. that you've done, based on the skill that you have. Mm -hmm. It's understanding, hey, there's a risk here, but I can overcome that risk with my abilities. Yeah. And it's the same when it comes to experimenting with substances. You you don't go, oh, well, nine out of 10 people have died taking this thing. I could be the one. Yeah. No, of course not. That's stupid. But if you go, well, nine out of 10 people have taken this, or let's say seven out of 10 people who have taken this have experienced these side effects, but they've also experienced these positive benefits. Mm-hmm. I'll try it. And if it doesn't agree with me, I'll stop taking it. If it so, does agree with me, I'll, I'll research it further and I'll try and make the most of it. So, so what would you say to parents who have children who are maybe at school or university and they're either taking the drug or thinking about taking it? Yeah. Well, actually, I was put in this position because my my girlfriend's aunt, her son was thinking about it. And I think the fact that he felt comfortable enough to talk to his mother about that, I think that's really positive but not everybody has that kind of relationship with their parents so if you don't have that relationship with your kid where you feel like you can't openly talk about it where you feel like your kid is maybe going to do things that you are um anxious about like i do feel i do feel like i can only comment on this so far because i don't have kids Mm -hmm. and so it's really easy for me to tell people to do things when i am not in that position I think ultimately you have to raise your kids knowing that there are very dangerous things in the world. But again, life's a full contact sport and you have to be prepared for those things. You can't Mm -hmm. avoid them. Mm -hmm. You have to prepare for them. You know, there's that horrible cliche that's painted on gym walls. The more you sweat in training, the less you bleed in battle. But it's true. You know, the harder you work to train, the more skilled you are the more uh, adept you are at, you know, taking on these things that would otherwise be be dangerous. Yeah. So I think you have to cultivate a, a, a relationship with your child that means that you can't talk about anything. I would say don't worry about it because there's a hell of a lot more dangerous things, there's a hell of a lot more destructive things, and there's a hell of a lot more addictive things yeah. that your kids could be doing. Hmm. So if they are on modafinil, I say on modafinil, if they're experimenting <laughs> with modafinil, Look, are there people that could be addicted to it? Probably. Are there people who are going to do irreversible damage to themselves? Probably. 
Again, I'm not a doctor. But realistically, is this the worst thing you should be worrying about? No. I'd be more worried about what they're drinking, yeah. what they're smoking, yeah. and what they're sniffing. <laughs> so that's that would be my advice. Yeah. Also, what they're watching on the internet. If I had some advice for my mother. <laughs> that was a joke, everyone. Good stuff. Good stuff. You have to tell them it's a joke, eh? Because yeah. they think that I watch some outrageous pornography. <laughs> we'll leave them guessing there. <laughs> right. I'm going to ask you a bit about Scotland. What are your views on Scotland as a nation? Oh, that is a good question. I like to stay away from the independence debate mm-hmm. because it's obviously red hot <laughs> and it's it's like the sectarianism of the 21st century. Uh, it really is it is a hot topic and it's very hard to have a sensible conversation about it. But Scotland as a nation, what, what, are, my, what are my opinions about it? Yeah. So it's quite well documented uh, through other mediums that uh, I think that we're probably underachieving okay. at the moment. And um, I think let's keep it let's keep it to kind of creative uh, the creative industries. Let's keep it to kind of content creators, uh, whether that be artistic, whether that be uh, athletic. Um, although we can extend it to things like sports as well, but. I think we probably are underachieving. I think I, I talk about that based purely on history. You know, you look at um, all of the, even like musicians, you look at television personalities, you look at sportsmen, and then you look at the new media now. And I, and I know this from personal experience because, and you'll know this too, Elliot, like how we even met each other was because we're looking to expand our community we're looking to uh, expand our connections within new media mm-hmm. there's very few to be made now why is that now, i don't know why it is but i have a theory and i think it's just purely to do with ambition i think there's a there's a real attitude of not overreaching and not you know not trying too hard and never aiming too high because you'll only be disappointed um and we mentioned it before. I think it, there might be a little bit of a kind of little brother, big ba- uh, little brother, big brother attitude mm-hmm. in that we feel like we'll always be doing worse than people down south. We should never try and be bigger than people down south. Mm-hmm. I think there's probably a working class mentality there, and uh, I'll, I'll say that I'm a working class person, very proud of being working class. I think having a working class mentality generally means that you want to work hard for everything that you get. But I think it also means classically that if you're someone who comes from a very modest background, Mm -hmm. perhaps those people in your life don't expect you to ever, ever remove yourself from that environment. Yeah. And I don't mean that to be negative Mm -hmm. specifically, Mm -hmm. but I think, I mean, a great example that I used was, you know, and don't get me wrong, I don't think the American attitude is a good one. But in America, it's this idea of if your kid tells you that they're going to win the Super Bowl or they're going to go to the top university, it's very much a, that is, that's the precursor to you being great. Yeah. That's the bare minimum that you need. In this country, and I don't want to make a generalization, but I guess we have to, it's seen as don't get 
too big for your boots. Mm-hmm. Hey, let's be realistic. Is that really what you can achieve? Yeah. And obviously that varies from families and you might be listening to this right now going, hey, well, my family always wanted me to achieve the most. And I'm, I'm not saying that my family wanted to hold me back, but I think maybe the idea that I would have, you know, won the World Cup when I was five years old and I could barely kick a ball that would have been like, all right, Jason, well, if you're not realistic, and I think it comes from a good place, if you're not realistic, you're only going to be disappointed. Now, is that why we're not, maybe not achieving as well? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Why, but why are there not prevalent content creators in Scotland? You know, when I was in London, I could walk out my house, I could spit and it would land on someone with 5,000 Instagram followers. It would land on someone who's got some kind of, you know, sponsorship deal for putting mascara on on Instagram, you know. Yeah. But yeah. up here, you can't get anyone that produces quality content. It's not even, there's not even, a, it's not like there's a myriad of people making shit content. No. There's just not anybody just, making stuff. Pretty much. Yeah. I, I don't, and I'm, you know, I don't intend for the question to be negative. It's mm. just really, um, you know, it's, it's, it's often inevitable that you look for, ways that you could do things better or scope for improvement and therefore you kind of go to the negative first you did um with previous guest sean vlog um on his sean that's cast. his government name <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> on his sean how appropriate that he's a vlogger <laughs> i know yeah exactly <laughs> on his sean cast um it, there was a an episode that says why are scottish people so reserved now of course there's a presupposition there that Scottish people are reserved but I mean do you think that Scottish people are reserved and why would you think that I think reserve is a funny word because obviously you know stereotype might be the loud drunk guy in the bar and I don't think Scottish people are reserved in the sense that we're ashamed or or you know antisocial or like shy Obviously not. Like Scottish people are the most vibrant, effervescent people that you meet, and people always say that. You know, you come to Scotland and people are so friendly. Friendly is maybe not the right word. People do say it, mm-hmm. but but always willing to have a conversation. And I think I think again, like I don't want to be negative either. I think that mentality. I think the mentality of not thinking too much of yourself keeps you grounded. And like I said, I don't think that the way that a lot of Americans think is positive because it creates this kind of superiority complex. Mm-hmm. Whereas here, you are grounded. Mm-hmm. Like I used the example before, like I could I could achieve the biggest thing in my career. I could be a millionaire, could have a sports car, I could win all these awards and my granny wouldn't think anything of it. But But you look behind that and that means that she gives a shit about who I am. It's like I love Jason for who he is, mm-hmm. but don't don't yeah don't think that having this job or having this wife or living in this house makes you anything else. So there is a positive there, yeah. But I think in terms of bringing it back to to content creation, uh, reserved and maybe maybe Sean used that expression because you do have to be an extrovert to want to be on camera, but. I don't know. I meet loads of people and I've got loads of friends who would be fantastic on camera mm-hmm. and they're just not. And I don't know. I don't know what the desire is. I mean, not everyone needs to be on camera. Not everyone should mm-hmm. want to mm-hmm. be. I'm not saying that. But again, we live in, in a world right now where you can be empowered to produce your own content. You could do a show on on how to build furniture. Like It doesn't have to be 
showbiz. It doesn't have to be extreme unicycling because I've already got that covered. <laughs> but it can be you documenting. I, I, like a big thing that I love is like tutorials, like how tos. Yeah. And I think they do really well because think about it, like you know twenty years ago, how'd you do this thing? Like you're trying to put up a shelf. You either know how to do it, you don't. You <laughs> yeah. know, a big thing I also was like, I never learned how to shave. Right. I think I read the back of the razor thing. <laughs> And I mean, that was rubbish. There's a lot of trial and error. But now you can go on the internet and you can find out how to do everything. Yeah. So why are there not more people doing that? Why are there not more people showing people how to do things that they're good at? Why are there not more people wanting to share what they do? Mm. There's 101 people showing you the coat they've just bought. And there's 91 million people showing you the mascara they've just put on. But there's not people who are genuinely creating enjoyable, engaging content. And... Maybe it's selfish. Maybe we just want more content to make with these people. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe. But um, yeah, I just I think it's 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 odd. And and rather than it being a negative, I would rather it be seen as a call to action. It's yeah. uh, and I don't want to say inspired. Inspired. <laughs> Available on the website now. Um, people, don't want to say inspired. people who are listening to this will not get this no but inspire <laughs> you want to inspire people to do things and I would love people to go hey Jason I watched you on that thing you're that crazy extreme unicyclist guy I watched that and I thought you know what he's right Yeah. maybe I am playing myself you know too low maybe I am aiming too low maybe I am I can do more things maybe more people do want to hear from me Maybe more people do want to see what I do. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, I've made a career yeah. off of riding a unicycle. Yeah. <laughs> and I think if I can do that, <laughs> Jesus Christ, anyone can make a career out of anything, you know? <sighs> right, let's get to the deep stuff. Mm. I'm just going to throw this one at you. Um, what do you feel is your purpose in life? Oh, I mean, that's, that's a difficult one, isn't it? I, I think, know that it's something you probably considered. Yeah, every day. Really? Uh, yeah, totally. Because I think it drive it, it drives you. It's 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 the drive of why you do anything. It's the drive of why you get up in the morning. Hmm. So uh, yeah, I think about my purpose. Also, I just turned thirty, and I think a lot of people have an existential crisis when they have a big birthday. Mm-hmm. Doesn't have to be thirty. It can it can even be twenty five, twenty one, eighteen. I know that I had. I started thinking about myself differently. I started thinking about my position. Uh, in my friendship group, in my in society, differently when I hit these milestones. Mm. And a big thing that people say to you is, "How do you feel? How do you feel?" And now there's there's one of two reactions. There's the there's the the one that everyone gives you, which is, "I'm not bothered. I feel the same. Just woke up. Just another day." Yeah. Which is clearly defensive. Yeah. It's clearly trying to deflect how upset you are <laughs> and how it's not just another day. <laughs> or you can do what I do. And that is that, like, yeah, it's a milestone and it's a big deal and it's something worth considering. But again, it doesn't have to be a negative thing. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. I think it's really important to be introspective and retrospective. Mm-hmm. And it's really important to think about where you've been, where you're going, and where you are now. So, what's my purpose? Purpose is a difficult one because when you start to talk about it in like a uh, like metaphysical sense or an existentialist sense, like, do I have a purpose? Was I born to do something? Hmm. Personally, I don't think I was born. Like, I have a, I have a tattoo on my chest, which you can see online. If you see, uh, follow me on Instagram, at Jason Pro Unicyclist. It says, existence precedes essence. Uh, 
Is that what it says? Yes. Oh, okay. And it's, uh, it's a Jean-Paul Sartre quote, mm-hmm. who was a French existentialist philosopher. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, he meant it in a, in a very metaphysical sense in that he meant the immaterial soul does not exist before your physical body. So he, it was very much this, an existentialist proclamation. Mm-hmm. Do I believe that? I don't know. I don't know if the soul exists. What I do know, or what I think I know, is that I wasn't born with a reason to be. Okay. And all of a sudden, when you tell yourself that, existence precedes essence. It means that you're born, and then you give yourself purpose. Yeah. What that means is that no one else gives you purpose. What that means is that the, the societal pressures that everybody feels, and it's okay to feel them, they don't define you either. You give yourself a purpose, and you give yourself a reason for being. So that's my philosophy. What's my purpose? My purpose is equal parts. Um, I want to. I want to. I want to touch people and engage people. I, I am very much a sociable person, and through the things that I do, I want people to talk to me about them. I want people to feel things. I want people to watch what I do. Someone uh, sent me a message when I did Thirty Days of Fury. They were uh, someone who was a single mother, who was my age. I went to school with them. They said, I've just started college and I'm 29.30 and I felt super self-conscious because everyone's younger than me. Everyone knows what they want to do with their life. And I'm here and I've got to raise this kid and I've got to know what this what I'm supposed to do for this kid. Mm. And I barely know what I want to do with myself. Mm. And I watched you 30 Days of Fury. And the message behind it was, you can do anything if you put your mind to it, right? That for me, like that blew me out of the water. Like I was incredibly moved by that. And I think the idea of touching one person like that mm-hmm. through a web series that's not got millions of views, that for me was amazing. Yeah. It moved me. So my purpose is absolutely to touch people, to move people, to make people think through what I do, to entertain people through what I do, to empower people through what I do. I want to do different things. I want to do things that people haven't done before, mm-hmm. which is really, really difficult in this day and age. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I really adopted the model. I think it was Chase Jarvis that said, do think better. No, think different, not better. So you don't go out in life to try and be better than other people. You, you, you approach your art and your creativity with thinking, what has no one done before? And I think it goes along with the quote of like, don't be the next Bill Gates or don't be the next uh, Cristiano Ronaldo. Be the first yeah. Elliot Reeves be the first Jason Ong. <laughs> Obviously, I won't be the first Elliot Reeves. That'd be great. But, um, and, then, oh, great and then my purpose from there, I guess, another one. Honestly, it does mean a lot to me to provide and support and be something for the people that I know. You know, I think it really is an underrated quality to want to be a good friend or mm. to want to be a good husband or boyfriend or brother or son. Um, and the older I've got, the more I have thought about that. You know, the more I've thought less about Jason Ald is this guy and I'm this guy and I want this and I want that. And more I've thought about Jason Ald is this to other people, hmm. which is difficult because then obviously you start to think about, you start to live your life for others and you start to pander to what other people think of you. It's not like that. I'm not entirely concerned with how people view me. Mm-hmm. Although I, there is definitely a self-conscious part of me for sure, mm-hmm. as there is with everybody. You have to keep that under control. But what I mean is I want to be useful and I want to be something. And I guess that goes hand in hand with the first thing that I was talking about in terms of purpose, providing for other people. 
Uh, so, I just want to be a rock star, basically. <laughs> a benevolent rock star. <laughs> so, so what would you like your legacy to be? Mm, that is a great question. Legacy is a word I've thought about a lot recently. Turning 30, legacy. When your job is athletic, mm-hmm. I've been getting this question since I was 19. What are you going to do when you can't do it anymore? What are you going to do when you can't do it anymore? Mm. And you brush it off. You're like, geez, come on, man. I'm in my 20s. It'll be fine. Some guy phoned me up from the bank asking me about life insurance when I was like 22 or something. He obviously had a point because it's weighed heavy on my mind since then. <laughs> but he, he was like, I was like, man, I don't need life insurance. I'm a f- professional extreme unicyclist. <laughs> and he went, you need life insurance more than I do. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, whatever. He's like, what if you injure yourself? You can't do it anymore. Whatever. Phone down. It's a good point. I could, but I made it to 30, so I'm all good. But, um, but yeah, I'm getting closer to the, uh, although I would say my perception, when I was a kid, you'll know this too, when I was a kid, athletes retired in their early 30s. Yeah. Now, like, again, I had this revolution. I turned 30. I was like, my God, I'm 30. All of my athletic achievements are behind me. Like, the, the I've peaked. And then I heard uh, our Lord and Savior, George St. Pierre, uh, UFC welterweight and UFC middleweight champion, talk about how he was in his prime between 30 and 33. So I was like, actually, and again, this is an idea of like reframing things, changing the narrative. Actually, I'm entering my physical prime, 30 to 33. It's that intersection between experience and physical attributes yeah and so now i'm starting to look at it more as actually maybe between 30 33 35 maybe this is when i'll do my most important work maybe this will be when my legacy is established what does legacy mean to me like i want to have a body of work i want people to look back at the things i did and i want these things to be relatively timeless as timeless as they can be um and i want it to be inspirational to some degree and my legacy yeah i don't know you do want to touch people you want people to feel something from what you've produced with your career with your time here so yeah in terms of me legacy building is creating powerful content creating uh, content that actually means something again yeah like being timeless very very difficult obviously things date really easily but uh i want to be able to watch something that i made 20 years from now and it still has some value to it Mm. whatever that may be so Mm. yeah legacy for me is definitely about leaving something behind that that stands the test of time yeah it's interesting because when i think of you i think perhaps somebody who kind of embraced risks and did things anyway obviously that's been kind of a thread in your life you know it's definitely an element of it yeah um but yeah, so like you might watch a video of something, some extreme stunt I've done. And yes, you know, the big, I don't want to say hero of mine because he was quite morally dubious, but a big kind of inspiration of mine was Evil Knievel. Yeah. Uh, Evil Knievel's life, like I think I mirror him in the sense that he wasn't the best motorcyclist in the world, but he understood the element of entertainment. He understood um, showmanship and 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 bringing theater to the kind of the motor sports and yeah you can look at his stunts but there's only so much to that to the physical element of his stunts it was 
the man behind it, like what inspired him to do it. And with Evil Knievel, it's the big thing is how badly did he fuck himself up doing it? Yeah. Now, I don't want that to be my legacy, but yeah, okay, totally. I want to do something. Like, a big thing that's caught me recently is how things, with, with advancements in cameras and technology, how do things aesthetically, visually look? Mm-hmm. You can create this film or this picture that looks beautiful for whatever reason mm-hmm. and then you realize <laughs> some guy on a unicycle riding along a railing on a bridge like do you know what I mean it's almost like that's the secondary thought <laughs> yeah but it looks aesthetically pleasing it speaks to you in that sense and um yeah i want to make things like that i want to create things like that and yeah i want people to look back and go you, you, again talking about timelessness mm-hmm. shit that guy did that thing it's still impressive now of course i want that but um, yeah, I, I want to elicit some kind of emotion. Unfortunately, the, elicit, the, the emotion I often elicit is anger and annoyance <laughs> and things like that because of the stupid shit that I do. But, but to be honest with you, I think that's as important as love and as important as like inspiration because it's still speaking to people on a very visceral, visceral level. Yeah. Why are these people getting annoyed at you? Why are they getting angry at you? Someone spoke to me very recently. Whenever you post anything, that is urban sports, extreme sports, street sports, like 75% of the comments will be negative. It's people hmm. talking, like we did a great video, Voodoo Unicycles, check it out. It's called, um, what's it called? Ah, oh, A Fine Balance. It's called a fine, a fine Balance, check it out. It was unicycling on the streets of Edinburgh at like four in the morning. It was very much inspired, like, 28 days later. Again, we're talking about, like, visual. The visual of that guy walking through the streets, empty London. It was, like, unicycling on the empty streets of Edinburgh. Beautiful visual, and I I think it's it's a really nice video. Someone, it was posted in in the Evening News or the Scotsman or something. Someone commented something like, 70 blind people are knocked over by cyclists riding on the road every year. You're promoting this. And I was like, dude, I was like, one, I can, can tell you there were zero blind people in October in the making of this film. Yeah. Two, the whole point of the film is there's no one about. Yeah. We're shooting it when there's no one else there. But this person, what this person wanted was they wanted to complain about something. Yeah. They wanted to see people who were genuinely, authentically engaged in the work they were doing. They were pushing boundaries. They were doing something that was on the cusp of being dangerous yeah and they wanted to moan about it because probably they'll never be there they'll be the people that saw opportunities and never took them yeah those they'll be the people who were scared and instead of what i said before having the strength to identify that there's something more important than being scared they didn't and they're annoyed at themselves and they're angry at themselves and they get annoyed when they see other people powering through that and actually achieving something don't get me wrong, I've done many things that are actually dangerous and are antisocial. So I'll own up to them and accept them when I do them. But that's not one of them. So, yeah. <laughs> What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? That's a good question. Can't remember what I said last time. What was it? Yeah, I wondered that as well. Uh, you mentioned something, I think, to do with The Rock, actually. Oh, I love The Rock. I think. I do love or The Rock. Or it was... Yeah, I need to double check that. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, I guess, (laughs) I guess it's testament to how that wasn't the best advice I'd ever be given because I can't remember it. Um, You know what? People don't give me a lot of advice. Really, I don't know why that is. Uh, The best advice I've ever been given. I mean, 
honestly, it goes back to, to what I said before about when my mom said, um, I don't care what you're doing as long as you're doing something. Mm-hmm. And I guess if you underpin that, it's this idea of, you know, a lot of laziness and sloth and, and lack of motivation and self-indulgence and hedonism that's going to get you nowhere like doesn't matter what you're investing your time and effort and energy into as long as you're doing something now obviously you know i had the caveat of we don't want it to be destructive you don't want to be doing things that are criminal Mm -hmm. uh you don't want to hurt other people but but obviously at the heart of that is the this understanding of doesn't matter if you have a degree. Doesn't matter if you've got a fancy job title. Doesn't matter if you've got a nice salary. You should be doing something productive. You should mm-hmm. be doing something engaging, and you should be something that gives you that kind of um, vigor and that kind of uh, you know energy and 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 passion. So, but I guess that's. I, I certainly don't want to credit my mom with the best advice I've ever had because. As much as I love my mom, she is not worthy of that title. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, in terms of advice, I mean, Dwayne The Rock Johnson always says, be the hardest worker in the room. And I do think that hard work yeah. trumps talent. Hard work trumps everything, 100%. If you're willing to never give up on something, if you're willing to persist, you want to put the hours in, I honestly think that you will achieve what you want to achieve. Hmm. And I think you'll get somewhere. You look at his story, like he started off as an American football player and he wanted to be an American football player. He never made it. He never made it. So if you go back to that point in his life, my God, how much of a failure must he have felt? Uh, This was the thing that he'd prepped his whole life for at college. uh, Then he'd become a professional Hmm. and then he gets axed and his dream is dead. Hmm. And now he's the rock. Do you know what I mean? He's the rock. He's the 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 most affluent movie, the highest paid movie star in the world. Yeah. He's one of the greatest pro wrestlers ever lived. He's the ball of charisma. He's an inspir- like one of the most inspirational figures ever. And he was someone whose dream, his initial dream, was crushed, was killed. Yeah. He was told he was never going to make it. So I think there's a story in there. I guess mm-hmm. there's inadvertent advice. Um, yeah, and also just be nice to people too like I, I, you know what really annoys me is when you hold the door open for someone right and they don't say thank you yeah. like how hard is that <laughs> how hard is that to say thank you for holding the door open and i think like there's a humbleness to that that if you keep yourself humble like j- just the whole idea the whole notion that you would hold the door open for someone like if you psychologically deconstruct that it's like a Yes, in one way, it's a submissive activity. It's yeah. this idea that you're saying that you are willing to hold a door open for someone to get through. But it's also quite an empowering uh, kind of like, I don't know what's the word, like, you know, for lack of a better term, like alpha mentality, because it's the idea of I'm strong enough to wait here and hold the door for you to go through. doesn't bother me. I'll keep on with my day. And I guess maybe it's not alpha. To expect a thank you maybe i should just not give a shit <laughs> that's the most analytical breakdown yeah. of door holding i've ever yeah. heard well there you go you can cut that into a clip <laughs> yeah. and then uh, i can put that on <laughs> jason's opinions the, the psychological deconstruction of holding the door open but also the psychological deconstruction of why don't you say thank you 
Why would you not say thank you? Maybe you don't think, maybe you think you're too good to say thank you. Maybe you don't think it's important. But yeah, I think being nice to people is like massively overrated. And I think it gets you everywhere. Mm -hmm. People are polite to me. I'm willing to go 100 million miles way above board than I would for someone who's rude to me. So, yeah. (laughs) You're 30. If you had the opportunity to speak to yourself when you were 20, what would you say? I'd say, stop pissing at my garden. (laughs) Get out of here. Uh, what would I say? I'd, like a big thing that I've been thinking about is like, don't worry about the future. Mm. Like, I don't know. I don't know what young kids are thinking these days. I really don't. But taking so much medaf now, like, <laughs> listening to mumble rap. I don't know. But um, yeah, no, I don't know what kids think these days. But you have to, I, I truly believe that there is a thread that runs throughout humanity since its inception. Like, I do think we're not that different. As different as society is and different as, as the world is and different as our lives are, I do think we ultimately think in very similar ways. We're motivated by very similar things. Our needs, wants, and desires are very similar. Our fear of death, our, our feel of, like, obsolescence is, 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 is the same. Yeah. Um, and so I think you do. Like, I remember, like, my whole motivation of, like, going to university is people were like, take a gap here take a gap year, give you a year to experience something new. It'll give you like, get you out in the world. It kind of detaches you from this kind of institutionalized mentality that you've had being in school your whole life. Mm-hmm. And I was like, no, I can't take a year. Go to unit 19. What, what are you talking about? Be out at 23. <laughs> so, but then you get a perspective. You're 30 and you're like, geez, like I could have done nothing for five years mm. and started my life at 23 and I would have been fine. You know, and I, but I do think there's this, and I think for me personally, I think a lot of it is driven by seeing like teen stars. That like you see Justin Bieber, mm-hmm. you're like, God, he made all this money, had all these hit records, had this house, had these girls, had all this, and he was like 15. <laughs> and I was like, God, I don't even want to talk about why. I was, I've been unicycling for a year when I was 15. Didn't have my blue Peter badge. Didn't have my world records. <laughs> certainly didn't have a girlfriend. So yeah, you compare yourself to other people, and but I would just say, look, take your time, focus on the now, think about the things. I think you have to have one eye on the future for sure, but focus on the now. Think about things. There's a great mentality of always trying to be like one percent better than you were yesterday. Now, yeah, okay, you think one percent—that's such slow progress, right? But hundred days—that's hundred percent. Whereas you could spend 100 days trying to be 100% better every single day, biting off way more than you could chew and not being 100% better. And if you just focused on that 1%, yeah. I think incremental change is a massive thing. Mm-hmm. Setting small goals as steps towards larger goals is a huge thing that everybody should be doing. So 20-year-old me was mm. was anxious and worried about the future, was, was you know self-conscious about maybe not having achieved what I felt I wanted to achieve. And I think a lot of that was was going back to what we previously said, being in an industry or being something that maybe didn't have gravitas or respect or even like I always say, like my uh, my in-laws are were super impressed whenever I'm on the telly or like when I broke, like me and my team, we broke a Guinness World Record and I got the certificate. I got this, I made sure I got that bloody big <laughs> certificate, right? Because I'd, I'd done a lot of work behind that. So I was like, I'm taking this home. 
So when I took it home and I was staying with my in-laws at the time, which was a very informative time in my life, actually. I mean, you know, living with your in-laws, crazy, yeah. right? Who the hell? Like my girlfriend is like from uh, culturally from an Indian background. So I was staying with two 60-something-year-old Indian people, Jason Ald. At the time when they met me, I had a blonde mohawk, <laughs> heavily tattooed, extreme unicyclist. This is not what we wanted for our daughter's future. And I totally feel totally feel for them. But then I came home with the Guinness World Record, Elliot. Yeah. And I always forgive it. <laughs> but no, like, because these are things, and I always say this to people who maybe don't lead conventional lives. These are the kind of um, social signals or social uh, rewards of hey i'm doing well for myself yeah you know like i could have done that thing i could have done the thing that got me the guinness world record but if i didn't get that certificate it would have been meaningless yeah. but hey i get the certificate and all of a sudden it means something mm-hmm. hey i was on a tv show have you heard of this like another another amazingly kind of touching moment in my life my girlfriend's cousin's daughter watched me on blue peter and she ended up like doing a talk about me being on Blue Peter. Wow. How amazing is that? <laughs> to like influence, like, I mean, you really should not let your children watch me on television. <laughs> I'll tell you that for sure. But no, like, how amazing is that? And again, that's the kind of like thing that, that inspires the people around you because they understand what that means. Mm-hmm. Hey, Blue Peter's been on for 60 plus years. Mm-hmm. Like they've had all these great talents on and they had Jason on unicycling. Ridiculous. Hey, can I just can I just say one thing about that experience actually? And I guess it kind of leads into other things that I mentioned. But I think this is a really important thing. I was on Blue Pier and I, they said to me, I was wearing a vest, as I often do. This is the first time I've worn a shirt in years. <laughs> Dressing up for inspired Edinburgh. <laughs> Thank you. Um they were like, you can't wear that. I was like, why not? It was like you can't show your tattoos on Blue uh-huh. Pier. I was like, why not? They're like, I don't know, it's just BBC policy. I was like, we can't enforce a policy if you don't know why it's being enforced. Sorry, I can't. I was like, okay, wait, David Beckham was on. Did you make him cover up his tattoos? Oh, that's different. Why is that different? Because he's David Beckham? Right, that's ridiculous. So you can't break the rules just because he's David Beckham. Well, I do love David Beckham, he's awesome. (laughs) But anyway, so I was like, so again, this is this dilemma. It goes back to this, like, do you want to take money from McDonald's? Do you want to take money from yeah, Saudi yeah. oligarchs, right? Uh, theocrats, whatever. Do I want to go on television and cover up my tattoos because it's BBC policy? Yeah. Now, why is it BBC policy? Because parents don't want their children inspired by people who are tattooed because they're probably criminals sailors or prostitutes <laughs> one of those things so I, but I was like that's perpetuating the myth yeah. if children are never exposed to people with, with tattoos if people are if children are never exposed to working class people if they're not exposed to gay people black people transsexuals whatever they're going to have misconceptions and they're going to be stereotypes mm. so what do I do do I, do I just you know fall in line and appear on Blue Pier and cover up my tattoos or do I do something about it do I, do I stand up and I go no I'm not doing this I was like, well, I just won't appear on the show. So, Elliot, I used my ingenuity and years of experience. Crafty. <laughs> I was like, Blue Peter is a live show. So once I'm on the telly, there's nothing I can do. Uh... Put my hoodie on. Did the opening demo. <laughs> then afterwards, got interviewed by the guy. Lovely guy. Can't remember his name. 
as I was getting interviewed, took my hoodie off, exposed my tattoos, realized, you know, we're in the lion's den now. There's <laughs> yeah. nothing they can do. And I exposed my tattoos. And as silly as it might sound to some of the viewers, as though, oh, wow, Jason, you're a martyr for tattooed people around the world. But I think you, if you, there's, there's that phrase, isn't there? Like, if you stand for nothing, then you fall for anything. Yeah. It's super easy for me to live my life the way that I do. But as soon as someone calls you out and asks you to kind of stand up and be represented and you fall by the wayside, yeah. like, well, you know, what is that for integrity, you know? So True. that was a good story about being on telly Love and exposing it. myself, essentially, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> uh, last question's a big one. If you change anything in the world, what would it be and why? God. Um, that, is, that is a big one, Alex. If I could change anything in the world, what would it be and why? You know, I don't want to be one of those people. You know, like there's those time travel films where they're like, hey, I didn't change anything because... I'm really yeah. happy where I am yeah. now, yeah. you know, for all. Yeah. Um, but like we talked, we spoke about, uh, you said a previous guest had said, remove borders. Mm -hmm. And then I, I kind of, my, my retort was this idea that I think you could remove borders, but I think in terms of socialization, people will always group together in tribes. They'll always look to label themselves and they'll always look to be part of groups that are like them. People want labels. I don't think labels and tribalism has to exclusively be a negative thing. I think when you start to, again, maybe this goes back to our conversation about being Scottish. I think, I think the fact that Scottish people don't think that they're superior to the rest of the world, I think mm -hmm. that's a good thing. But I think it's okay to be proud of being from a place. Mm -hmm. I had a great conversation. In fact, I'll name drop him. There's a guy called Greg from On Man who yeah, was yeah. spoken about On Man. They're an athletic clothing apparel from right here in Edinburgh. Um, but they're ran by Polish guys. And I had a great conversation with Greg and he said, um, we want our product to be like outwardly unapologetically Scottish, but we don't want it to be cheesy. It's like all of us have come here and we love this place and it's given us so much. And he was almost apologetic where he was like, oh, I'm a Polish guy representing Scottish people. And I said, you know what? That really touches me because I think and, and I'll go out, you know, we, we briefly touched on Scottish independence. I'll go out and say that I supported Scottish independence. And it wasn't from a place of like xenophobia or superiority. Mm -hmm. It was for this exact reason. It was, I think being Scottish has got nothing to do with where you were born. It was nothing to do with the patch of land you were born on. It's got nothing to do with the nationality of your parents. It's to do with a culture, an ideology and a community that you buy into. If we can all buy into that, then let's call ourselves Scottish. And then I said to Greg, I was like, that's why I can see that you echo those things exactly. So you're more Scottish than people who were born here that don't buy into those <laughs> yeah, ideas. Yeah, that's true, actually. You know? yeah. And I think for me, it, it makes me think of like a football team, mm -hmm. you know? Like I'm a, I'm a Liverpool FC fan. And, I, you know, you get players who are Spanish players, mm -hmm. great Scottish players play at Liverpool over the years. And you start to identify as a scouser. You know, it's like, what is it to be a scouser? Yeah. And it's this, like they played for this team and it has an identity and it's a community and it's a group of people. And then you give yourself that label. It's got nothing to do with the language you speak or, you know, the color of your skin or, or any of that stuff. So, I mean, that's me deconstructing someone who's no doubt a hundred times more intelligent than me 
what they would change in the world. I don't want to. I don't want to snakily avoid the question, so I'm going to try and give you an answer. <laughs> if I could take something or change something mm-hmm. in the world, uh, what would it be? Such a good question. You know what? I guess this is a very hypothetical question. Uh huh. Short attention spans. Jeez, okay. And it goes back to what we were saying before. But I think short attention spans, and I guess it's a bit of a chicken and the egg thing, like <laughs> has media been influenced by the fact that we have short attention spans or yeah. are short attention spans being created by the media? But there's so much shit out there that's <laughs> 30 seconds long yeah. that's worth absolutely fuck all yeah. because someone can stick a, a logo on it or you can wear a top in it or you can vape or drink a drink for 30 seconds and that's deemed like quality and people can't sit and watch a television show that's 45 minutes long yeah and you know inspired edinburgh is obviously going against the grain (laughs) you're doing exactly what i said you're making your content based on what you think is right not based on what people are telling you to make yeah totally and only in these long-form conversations do you ever get anything of value. Yeah. And it doesn't just have to be about watching things. Like, think about reading a book. Like, and don't get me wrong, I'm not. I'm being a total hypocrite here. I find it really hard to read because I've got a really bad attention span. That's why I'm just full of medafinal all day long. <laughs> no, I'm joking. Um, but no, I do. I have struggled with attention span, but it's something that I've coveted and it's something that I've pursued. I've tried to increase my attention span through mm-hmm. things like meditation. Even by things like, you know, when you've got that urge, how many people watch the TV and are on their phone at the same time and are maybe trying to have a conversation with your spouse? You're trying to do th- three things at once and you realize, like I heard Tim Ferriss say, he was like, once upon a time, multitasking was seen as a positive trait. It was like, now, multitasking is is exactly the thing that is taking you out of all of the things you're trying to do at once. Yeah. To be immersed in something, like, that is that is a, a feeling that I long for, totally. Mm-hmm. It's that feeling of being immersed, it's being totally engaged on the one thing. It's yeah. so cathartic. Like, people say to me, like, when, like, I love going to the gym, turn my phone off. Go to the gym, focus 100%. And beyond the fact that you're going to get fitter, beyond the fact that you're going to produce better results in the gym, you come out after 45 minutes to an hour because it was an hour in the day, maybe the only hour in the day that you weren't doing something else yeah, at the yeah, same time. Yeah, you know? yeah. So it, it's got to the point now where you, you'll watch a football game or you'll watch a film and that's not entertaining enough. Then these oh, there's a lull in the film. I'll look at my Instagram feed. It's like the lull in the film is designed to be there because it can't be in all intensity all at once. Yeah. And you start when you start to do things like read books without interruption or watch films without interruption. Or another great thing that is dead that I love is listening to an album in its entirety. Oh, People don't do that anymore. No. People listen to one song. <laughs> and, and and to be fair, a lot of artists don't make albums to be listened in their entirety. Mm-hmm. One guy that I love, Kendrick Lamar, uh, he's got a number of albums if you listen to them in their entirety. If you can get through, I mean, you're talking about an hour. Do you know what I mean? You're talking yeah, about an hour. Yeah. You can sit and listen to that one thing. And I've had experiences where like, maybe I've been drinking or I've been like chatting to someone. So it's not exclusively just sat there listening to it. But <laughs> it brings a whole new experience to it. And it is very rewarding and it's very fulfilling. 
So maybe if I could change one thing, God, that's pretty profound, Ellie. It's more profound than I thought it would be. If I could change one thing, it would be short attention spans. Awesome. And then we could do like four hour long Inspired yeah, Edinburgh. Yeah, Jason Ald on for eight <laughs> hours this week on Inspired Edinburgh. That's not long enough. It's not long enough. Yeah, so there you go. Awesome. Awesome. Jason, it's been brilliant to have you have you here. Like, I've really, really enjoyed... Me too. It's been brilliant uh, to be here. Hearing your perspectives on all sorts, talking about modafinil, unicycling, Scotland, covered it all. That's my so. legacy right there, isn't it? Yeah. Thank you for much. having me. It's been brilliant. Thanks awesome. for the opportunity. It's a pleasure. Hopefully I'll be back soon for that eight-hour podcast. (laughs) Jason, thank you so much. Cheers. You've been listening to Inspired Edinburgh. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe for more powerful conversations. Thank you for taking the time to listen to our show, and we'll see you at the next episode.